Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. Today, Greg is in conversation with a special guest who is the Vice President of Global Education and Workforce Development in Corporate Social Responsibility at IBM. Today, our guest is Ms. Lydia Logan, who is responsible for the development of new and innovative education initiatives and strategic global partnerships with IBM's clients. In this episode, you will learn her vision of effective philanthropy and social impact work from the corporate side, scaling 30 million jobs by 2030, IBM's apprenticeship program being recognized by the Department of Labor that gives an opportunity for candidates without advanced degrees to build new technical skills while getting paid, and so much more revolving around the great work IBM is doing. Hope you guys enjoy this one. Um, yes. Okay. Ms. Lee Logan, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Greg? Doing great. Appreciate you joining the Square Pizza Pod. I am really excited to be here. I've admire many of your former guests and so I'm glad to be in their company and excited to talk a little bit with you about me not that that's super fantastic but what we're doing at IBM which I think really is no we're excited to have you and you're coming where are you coming from today in the world I am here from Chevy Chase Maryland right outside Washington DC just a few blocks over the line yes that's great and you enjoy the DC area I do. I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian. There aren't oh, many wow. of us. Um, yeah. Most people stay here about three years. They come and go with an administration and that's kind mm. of the flow of the city. It keeps things fresh. Yep. But there are a handful of us who were born and raised here. And uh, I moved across the line to Maryland and I'm still making peace with it. But it's a great <laughs> state. No offense to my, my, my friends here in Maryland. But, you know, at heart, I'll always be a D.C. girl. That's great. And I know when we first connected before the recording, you said you have a pretty cool, I thought a pretty cool um, kind of favorite activity in DC, if you feel comfortable sharing that with the audience. Yes, I do. So, you know, everybody comes for the malls and the monuments and most people do their tours during the day and they hit the restaurants at night. I always take my friends on a nighttime tour. I think there's something really, really special and powerful about DC at night. The monuments are grand. There aren't as many people around. You can really be sort of in the quiet with yourself and the quotes that are in each of the monuments. And it really is special. I mean, it really makes you feel like Washington is the capital city. Uh, and that's my favorite thing to do. My favorite special DC thing is to do a nighttime tour. I mean, it's smart for all the reasons you just said, but also, you know, people that live in towns that have a high volume of tourists always know the best times both like throughout the day and seasons to do like semi-touristy things, even though they're not yes. tourists, but to give um, their friends and visitors the best experience. So I love that. Yeah. There used to be a, a t-shirt they sold downtown that said, I'm not a tourist. I live here. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like in cities like that, it's important to distinguish um, because if not, you'll, you'll get caught up in, in crowds. Um, maybe you don't want to be caught up in. Especially for those of you who haven't come during cherry blossom season. Cherry Blossom season, nighttime tour, all-time great. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I really didn't know the Cherry Blossoms was a thing until like two years ago. And I've been to D.C. Oh, with friends, but I had no idea. I guess it shows my ignorance, but um, glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'd say the other thing to do with Cherry Blossoms, the sunrise walk around the Tidal Basin. Look at you. you so it's like a 
you know, you have to be up for it. It's like a 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning kind of thing, but it is, it's beautiful, really beautiful. Highly recommend it. Like not that you need another job, which we'll get into in a minute, but it sounds like <laughs> Chamber of Commerce or something like Re- Visitors Authority is right up your alley here pretty soon recruiting people to uh, to D.C. Yeah, well, I've, you know, uh, the city is is my home and I think showing people the best of it uh, is something that I love to do. And I, I enjoy the special aspects of Washington. That's great. Um, so we're going to get into you and who you are in the work and all. Um, really incredible work you've been doing at IBM through their um, philanthropy and social impact work. Uh, but before we do and kind of connect to that, I think in our space, and as you said, so many guests we've had before, the word social impact and philanthropy and corporate social impact means so much to so many different people and organizations, right? Based upon who they are, how they function, their vision and mission. Um, but we've long respected IBM, I think, for how they approach it. Um, And we'd love for you to just kind of share at a macro level how you all approach the work of uh, corporate social responsibility. Sure. We really, uh, IBM takes its diversity and inclusion work very seriously, and it plays out across the company, both talent acquisition, training, what uh, we're required to learn and the business conduct guidelines that, that we live by at IBM, but also the work we do on the corporate social responsibility team. So it's really about creating opportunity and taking the assets of of IBM are the great knowledge that we have and innovation and making sure that those are available around the world to people who traditionally may not have, may have been marginalized and may not have had access. And so I've got, you know, the great pleasure of having a job that really manages a big piece of that work for IBM. Yeah, it's incredible. We're going to get into some of the audacious goals and the bold goals you guys have, which is great. But I think also um, the layers and the intentionality of the way you guys approach the work is really promising, right? It's not necessarily just uh, donating book bags or, um, you know, cutting checks or building picnic tables, right? I think the way we see it, it's incredibly comprehensive in a way that supports those you all are trying to serve the most. Yeah, we, you know, we are all in on it. And I know we'll get into this a little bit later and we have support across the company because in order to do what we're doing, you know, requires more than just a small team. Mm -hmm. It really requires us to work as one IBM, but it also requires the support of leadership. And we have that uh, from our CEO. So we're fortunate to to have a leader who really believes that this is work IBM should be doing. Yeah, we'd love to dive in. I mean, you guys have a number of large initiatives, but I think the one that stood out to us the most in the research was the scaling, scaling up uh, 30 million people by 2020. And I wasn't a math major or by 2030. Yeah, I know we don't want to get that right. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't a math major, but 30 million in nine years seems incredibly bold, which, which we on on this end love. So we'd love for you to to share more about the 30 million by 2030 goal. Sure. Um, You know, we are, Coming out of a pandemic, there are, well, let me start earlier than that, right? IBM has had a long history of commitment to skilling and creating opportunity um, and innovation. And so this is sort of our next big iteration of that. Our P-Tech schools turned 10 this year. Uh, That was a a groundbreaking model. It was an early college high school model. We now have, um, you know, schools all over the world. And those students start in high school and go through two years of college. Those two years are paid. It's got work-based learning 
program as part of it, mentoring. And the idea was that you should be able to gain skills, get out of high school and go straight to work, right? We've been doing that for 10 years. We're going back to the 40s, we were um, created computer science as a new um, as a new discipline. And we've been taking people and giving them skills and providing opportunity for them to have family sustaining wages. And we've been doing that for minorities for a long time. I think I heard yesterday from our um, head of human resources that IBM had uh, an executive letter that predated the Civil Rights Act around equity at the company. So this is really a long-standing IBM tradition. And I can say, um, you know, my parents taught, were excited for me to join IBM because in their generation, there were very few corporations that offered jobs to black people, but IBM was one of them. Well, and so they were really, uh, really proud that I was becoming an IBMer. So this is really our, our latest big commitment, but it, but by no means is it the first, maybe the biggest, but it's not the first. So, right, the go big or go home, 30 million by 2030, we're all in. Uh, we're, it's gonna take a lot of effort, a lot of partners. This is certainly not an IBM first, IBM alone kind of thing. This is gonna require us to work across the company, to work with nonprofit partners, to work with government partners, to work with clients and really provide access to training and certifications, badges, apprenticeships, all the things that we offer across our, our teams, global university programs, has academic initiatives. So we're all in on this 30 million around the globe. And one of the, so a slice of that, right, is my responsibility and then my colleagues will be working with me on their pieces to get this done. And I know we could talk forever about how and why you all are going to get this done. But curious, like a, a few broad strokes you can offer of how you, you all are even approaching reaching a number that seems so kind of gargantuan in size. Sure. So, um, you know, we have Skills Build, which you all can visit at skillsbuild.org. It's mm -hmm. free. It's open and available. It has badges. We've got two sides, one for students that's really geared towards high school students and career exploration. And then we have one for job seekers. And that has uh, free courses on it. Some of them are shorter, some of them are longer, six, eight, 10 months, where you can be prepared for certain roles and earn badges. And those badges can be you know, posted on your LinkedIn profile or on your resume. You can take those to hiring managers. We're really working on uh, you know, IBM has been big on new collar jobs. So this is being skilled through alternative routes. If you're familiar with the work that the, give a shout out to my friends over at the New America Foundation and Opportunity at Work, they call people stars, skilled through mm -hmm. alternative routes. Uh, but there are a lot of people out there who have skills and they either need to be reskilled or upskilled. Uh, they may be entering the job market after not having been in for a while. Uh, so it isn't only about entry-level jobs and entry-level skills, but having something at IBM to meet people where they are and help them to get where they want to go. So there are thousands and thousands of jobs that are open and available, and we don't have enough people to fill them. And that's not just a, a problem at IBM. It's part of the tech sector. Um, the, that's really where the opportunity is. And so that's where we'll focus our efforts. We have um, courses and content and AI and cybersecurity and blockchain. 
that's really sort of our bread and butter, but we also have a lot of information and an opportunity to get trained on professional skills and mindfulness badges and things like that. Uh, program management and those kinds of things that are across any job skills that you would need in order to be successful. So we'll continue to add content and we'll continue to add partners in the work, but we rely on our local partners to bring learners and help the help support them get trained and then carry them through the process until we can hand them off and, and hopefully help them get interviews for jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's comprehensive and, and so impressive. And uh, a micro question, if you will, around these badges, right, which seems really cool um, for both, you know, maybe like potential employers, which I think could be IBM or just IBM partners or maybe none of the above, but also just the skills that these individuals are able to glean and master um, and, and showing these badges. And so is, is part of the vision that as I, a candidate or somebody that needs additional skills, as I'm collecting these badges, I use them in a way that helps market my skills and my competencies or positions 100%. in the future. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of conversations are going on now inside IBM and with our clients who are partners and in the sector about how we can honor each other's badges, how we make sure that they carry value in the marketplace for job seekers. I mean, we can commit that the level of quality for the badges we are offering is a standard that we hold at IBM. We are working closely with our colleagues in talent acquisition they're familiar with the badges that we issue and we're doing that same work with our partners and saying we all need to do a better job of making sure that these hold value for people who earn them, that these are not you know, things that are a waste of time, that they actually add up to meaningful training and prepare people for, uh, for work. Yeah, I think it's so important and um, you know, commonalities between, you know, if it's curriculum in high schools, you know, if English one is the same English one in Charlotte as it is in DC compared to Austin, Texas, right? Um, and even just like the skills that maybe a ninth grader coming out of English one should have, albeit not the same as the exact badges, but to your point, almost this idea of reciprocity and quality across badges, knowing what employers are, are getting and also what candidates are being skilled for, I think is a really important um, opportunity that you guys are already working on. Yeah, we're having lots of conversations about uh, skills frameworks and mm. and mapping and how do we make sure that you know badges are meaningful. So I I just want to impress upon people that it is there there's a deep foundation of you know uh, learning science behind how we're approaching badging and how we talk to our partners about it. We talk to Manpower. We talk to Burning Glass. We talk to all of our clients. Um, in, you know, in the ecosystem of IBM. So this is, um, it isn't just like we called a graphic designer and came up with a nice badge with our logo and said, here guys, you know, let's sprinkle some around like birdseed. No, these are, these are really meaningful uh, for people who are earning them. Yeah, and I think that level of detail and attention is why you guys are so kind of so renowned for for this work. So kudos to you for for doing that. And I think one thing connected to this goal, if at least not runs closely in parallel from our understanding is this partnership with 110 that IBM has. And Mm -hmm. 110 itself is a really incredible organization. Um, But curious if you're able to share more about that partnership between both orgs. Yeah, well, we are a participating company. And, and, you know, I think many people know it was founded by our former CEO. And so there's a, you know, there's a commitment to hire black people 
for jobs and IBM is all in on that. So we, you know, we have multiple goals that are going at the same time. One of them is around employment and that's the 110 goal, but the skills goal is uh, separate from that. It's sort of additive, but it's, it's, uh, it's got us all very busy. I can say that. Yeah. And that's, um, I actually didn't realize to, to be honest, the uh, former CEO from IBM was the founder of, of 110. So I think that overlap is, is cool. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, it, and it speaks right to the tradition of IBM being Sorry. being all in on on uh, talent and making sure that people are are getting trained and and hired. Yeah, and curious, Lydia, from you know both your own personal experience and also as as you said, IBM's work predating back pre Civil War, which is incredible. Um, what what have you and I you as a human and I think IBM learned in this work around equity? and corporate social uh, responsibility over the course of, of your time there? Well, I'm, I'm relatively new to IBM, right? I started late July, mm-hmm. um, but I, I have the, the commitment of IBMers is for, for me unparalleled. I mean, we have mm-hmm. mentoring programs, virtual mentoring, uh, we're a learning culture. So every IBMer, for those of you who don't know, are required to do 40 hours of learning every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a minimum. A lot of people do a lot more. And we have uh, internal badges that are awarded for people who are champion learners and super learners who are you know, up over 100 hours. Uh, and we take the same training that we're offering on skills build. So that's available internally to IBMers to, to skill up on, on these same topics. Uh, so that's something else I think people should know is we've taken a lot of what we offer that's designed for professional learning at IBM and made it available to the public. So it's, um, we're, you know, we, that, that quality bar is the same for inside IBM and outside. Um, it really is a special place of, you know, where there's a commitment to giving back. And I think that really speaks to this 30 million commitment and how that, how that all came about. It's one reason why I wanted to be, be here. Oh. And that 40 hours of learning, what can you just share more about what that looks like for others that are, you know, other organizations that are thinking about offering that to to their team members? Um, there's uh, there's so much I, I there are over. Um, so skills build is built on the same platform that IBM uses for employees. That's mm-hmm. it's a platform called that we call your learning. And it uses AI, it'll suggest things to you like, oh, if you liked listening to the speech, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell gave on the future of work, then you might also like (laughs) this other thing. So there are all kinds of things that we have access to. You can become a, you know, certified data data analytics person. You can learn about blockchain. Again, all the things that we offer through SkillsBuild are offered to IBMers, um, but we have all kinds of other things, how to do, um, you know, agile processes, how to do, we have leadership training, we have, you name it, it's sort of like, I think of IBM like a sim city, (laughs) like it's got its own university, it has like, you know, offices around the world, it has communities, we have BRGs that are business resource groups, and you know, for, for women at IBM, for black people at IBM, for LBGTQ plus at IBM, for people who are interested in, you know, all kinds of things. So it's like this, it, it is like a, a global community of people who are interested and engaged 
in using knowledge and, and creating new things and being entrepreneurial and innovative and bringing other people into that work and sort of lifting all boats. And I'm, you know, it sounds a little hokey, but it, but it really is. It's why people come and stay so long. Yep. It's not hokey if it's working, right? And, and having right. real impact. So I think that's, um, I think you all should feel comfortable and proud, right? From, from everything you said. And maybe one more thing, and you touched on it quickly, but you know, the concept of, of the P schools or the P tech schools that you mentioned, you know, not right. sure. You know, I think from, from our vantage point, I think some people in traditional kind of K-12 education know about it, but I guess may, maybe not a lot. And I, and I could be wrong, uh, maybe more sure. so in, in kind of the corporate side, but I think from what we understand, a really incredible model. Um, and as you said, is already scaling in a, in a pretty significant way. So just curious if you don't mind sharing more about that for the audience. Sure. So P-Tech schools, like I said, have been around for 10 years and the, they're an early college high school model. And the, what happens is the state accepts the model as a model for the state. And then the legislature appropriates funds for those two years of post-secondary ed that are included. And then anyone can open a P-Tech school. So while IBM launched the model and, you know, we are partners to um, scores of schools uh, in the U.S. and outside the U.S., we are not the only people who are stewards of P-Tech schools. So some of those other industry partners, every school has at least one industry partner. Um, and those industry partners provide mentorships and internships for students and sort of exposure to people in different careers, right? It's the idea that you, you need to see it if you want to, to know you want to be it, you need to see it, right? And, and affluent kids see all people in all kinds of powerful roles all the time, doctor, lawyer, engineer, chief, politician, engineer, you know, financier, you name it, all kinds of careers that, you know, you screenwriter, television producer, students who uh, are not in communities like that may not have that exposure. How do you know that's what you want to be? You don't even know what, you might know what you like. You're not sure what paths you can take. So the idea is really to expose students to careers, primarily technical careers, right? And then give them opportunities to learn and to have workplace learning so that when they're either applying to college, they'll do the two years, whether they decide to stop after that and go to work for a while, maybe they go back to school, maybe they stay working, maybe they go on to a four-year school, but it gives them the exposure, the leadership, the, you know, the guidance and the coursework all while they're in high school. And then it takes the financial burden off the table because the first two years of post-secondary are paid for. So it's a, you know, it's a, a very robust model. We have a lot of P-Tech schools in New York. There are a lot in Texas. There are some in Colorado. They're, they're sprinkled around the United States and others have taken hold of that model and they've opened their own schools. And, you know, those schools by all accounts are doing great. I'm just starting to visit, uh, visit wow. some of them. And we're, you know, we're, it's almost like a let a thousand flowers bloom kind of thing where, you know, there are schools out there, we don't know, we, we think we may not even know about every single P-Tech school. So we, we certainly are engaged with the ones we know about, but if people decide to open a P-Tech school, we have all the resources on our website and, um, you know, 
they, they we we often will connect them to people who if they come to us yep. who have open schools that are successful but you know it's by no means uh, limited only to to IBM yeah i'm not sure i heard you say north carolina so it seems like we might have yes. a follow up conversation about getting some some pizza we have a school i think that just opened an rtp so oh perfect good okay good i was just saying it's yeah. a good spot yeah. not, not as nice as charlotte but that's another conversation um <laughs> I, I, you know, I think to, to, to yeah, I don't have a pony in that race. <laughs> yeah, before we get in trouble there, um, you know, I, I think the 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 point about ex- access and exposure is is so important. As you mentioned, right, the work we've done with diverse educators, I think it's it's a continual theme, but an important theme that comes up that students that look like them don't envision themselves as a teacher or as a principal or as a superintendent unless they're able to to see themselves in that role and and have access to people that currently are in that role. So I think that level of pipeline and that level of exposure is so important. So I appreciate you calling on that. Secondly, I mean, a little bit of a nerd highlight maybe, but the um, plan and the approach to get it passed at a state level. So it doesn't have to just sit within IBM forever, but is also allowed to kind of have the credentialing recognition across each state is is obviously really smart and really strategic that I don't think many people would um, catch up on um, as they're launching an initiative like this. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with an eye on sustainability, we're looking at, you know, what is the future of P-TECH? And, and like, it's it's scaling, it's growing. We, you know, we have our schools, they're, they're doing well, but there are um, great opportunities out there. And so we're, we're really looking at, you know, the future of P, the future of P-TECH because it's, you know, it's bigger than IBM. That's I, I think that's a, another nod to the incredible work you all are doing. Um, so, you know, that's that's IBM. But obviously you, Lydia, as as a human, um, have an, an incredible background. And so um, and just really impressive. And but no, you probably wasn't always easy to get there day by day. So curious if, if you don't mind um, sharing, if you have a professional failure that you can talk about. Oh, a professional failure that I can talk about. Your favorite uh, one, your favorite one, of course. So I, I, um, oh, favorite professional failure. I hate failure. I have to tell you, it just like, I accept it as a part of life. Sure. I have, um, just a small amount of what I consider to be healthy anxiety that propels me forward all Mm -hmm. the time to keep me sort of on my toes. Um, and so I, I try to always think, um, ahead and anticipate what's going to go wrong. It's sort of a hope for the best plan for the worst. Mm-hmm. I had a professor once who said, hope is not a strategy. Mm. You must have a plan. Right. So I, um, I've been involved. I was involved in a, in a very large, intensive, high stakes, statewide uh, systems change initiative. And I really felt, uh, I mean, not just did it take a couple of years of my time and many, 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 many others, but the, the, what we were trying to do for children was really important. And I think, um, you know, we had seen the recovery school district in, in Louisiana launch and, um, we thought at the time we could make that work in another state. And I know that, you know, 
there were a lot, hindsight's always 2020, right? Um, so I was working on a team that I'm not going to name the place, but people will maybe probably figure this out. Um, I think we underestimated the local context. And I would say this is something that philanthropists sometimes do, right? Which is why we're so intentional about having local partners who know the community while we're working on this right scaling 30 million, what are the jobs on the ground where you are? Who are the right partners? Do they know the community? Can they support the learners they're, they're bringing with them to this work? I think um, in the back of my mind, this other experience that I'm talking about is part of why I, we have to be really intentional and careful. So there were political, there was a political history. There was a lot of you know community history. And we really felt that because we were doing what we thought was the right thing, that we would overcome all of that and that we could do it quickly. And I don't think we brought people along with us. Um, I think we had a little too much of a savior mentality. Um, I think uh, we were working with urgency in a way that made us not, uh, er, we felt we were being urgent on behalf of children, but I think we pushed people too far too fast uh, and it didn't stick. And I think that's what happens. I have this sort of rubber band theory, right? When you make dramatic changes quickly, the pendulum swings back the other way quickly. It's like when you pull a rubber band too far too fast, it snaps back. Yep. And so to see that work unravel after we did it, because we didn't do it in a way that it was sticky enough and had the sustainability to really make the change in the lives of those kids that we thought we could help to make. Uh, that's probably my biggest professional failure. Yeah. Appreciate you sharing. I know it's not easy, um, but I think all the lessons that you're able to offer are important for, for the audience. Um, and I think too, from what we've seen with our work, but also observing others and, you know, in terms of like a systems level kind of ed reform work is what you saw is that or what you spoke on is that um, there's still many lessons and wins probably along the way that can continue to be carry the ones that you've both lifted up for your own personal wins, but also for those that you were seeking to serve at that moment and also for future iterations. And so um, I think those opportunities are always important to lift up knowing if, if, you know, the certain or the major quantifiable goal wasn't, wasn't reached there, there's still probably a number of wins along the way that made people's lives better in, the, in those communities that you were serving. I think that's true. I've stayed in touch with a lot of those people. Um, and I think we did do some good. I just don't, we didn't realize the potential of it, you know, soon as well. There's, Always more to do and more good There's stuff. Always to come, more. Right? Yeah. There's always more. Um, cool. Going to get you out of here on a few hopefully fun questions. Uh, what can the audience do to support your work at IBM? Sure. I think let people know that Skills Build is out there and that it's free, yep. free, 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 and available. Um, it's not a freemium. It's not free for a little while. And then yeah. there's like a catch on the back end. It's free. Um, so I think for, for people who are working in nonprofit organizations with adults who might need some upskilling and want a place to start, check it out. Um, because it's a, it is an easy, it's a, there's a low barrier to entry. 
Um, we're working on getting more uh, what we call enablement uh, together, but like videos and supports for people who may be helping others use it. There is a lot of information there. There's a lot of free training. So sometimes people say, oh my God, we're overwhelmed with the, you know, the amount of options. But um, if you know someone or if you're interested yourself, please get, get in there. There's yeah. a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah, there is. We've been snooping around and it's awesome. And we'll definitely put the actual link in the show notes so people can click right on it. Skillsbuild.org. Um, yeah, yeah. What, uh, what advice would you give to others in the corporate social responsibility space, either kind of funders within the corporate side or, or you know, um, peers and yours or nonprofits, others that are looking to garner your support to, to grow their work and their missions? Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked a little bit about it when I talked about my failure. It's listen to the people who are on the ground hmm. because uh, there's always local context. There's always, um, you can't know it all from 30,000 feet. You can help, you, you have to bring people along with you. Um, and I'd also say, while we're looking at recovery from COVID, getting people back to work, getting uh, people prepared for jobs, we had a tremendous um, revelation, which wasn't really a revelation for a lot of people, that there was a massive digital divide around the world. Mm -hmm. We're working hard on some offline options um, that, that will launch for skills build. I may have, you know, annoyed some people by saying that because I don't think I'm going to announce it before it happens. Urgency. But, so put, put friendly uh, urgency I, in, in the um, atmosphere. I think if we're out there saying that we are trying to help people who have traditionally been marginalized, we can't ignore the fact that there are a lot of people who don't have consistent access to broadband. And if we don't have a solution for them, it doesn't have to be comprehensive and it doesn't have to be everything, but we've got to have something, then um, we're not really being um, real about what's needed. So I, you know, I would say, look at where the opportunities are and then make sure that, you know, quality is high. We're continuing to work with partners. You continue to work with people on the ground. You continue to listen um, and that we work together, right? This is filling these jobs, making sure that people have opportunity, making money is flowing right now from the U.S. federal government and around the world around COVID recovery. And we've got to collaborate to make sure that we don't miss this opportunity. It's not, it's not going to happen again. I mean, thank God, we'll hopefully we won't have a pandemic yet again, right. but the resources that are available right now and the public will to do something about it, I think is a, it may be the opportunity of our generation and we shouldn't let it pass us by. I think that's absolutely right. And I'd co-sign that um, given the unprecedented world in which we're living in for a number of reasons, but specifically to your point with ARP funds and others, um, but the best practice that you mentioned that um, my guess, and it sounds like your guess will be the, the communities, the organizations, the school districts that leverage those monies, the best will be the ones that co-create solutions with those end stakeholders, those parents, those students, those teachers, in a way that makes sure they're aligning what's happening, quote unquote, on the ground, in the classroom, in the homes, in the communities, with the 300, 400, 600 million dollars that are coming into those communities soon. The World Economic Forum, this is one of my stats, says closing the skills gap could add 11.5 trillion to global GDP by 2028, but 
education and training systems would need to keep pace in order for that to happen. And so we're doing our part to close that gap. It's incredible. Um, Lydia Logan, what does square pizza remind you of? <laughs> well, square pizza reminds me of three things, right? Three. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Everybody so am, take... I, am I, do I only get one? No, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm letting the audience know they're listening to this. If they're driving, they should pull over. They should grab, <laughs> make sure they're parked in a safe spot. They should grab their pencils or pens so they can write this down. But I don't know if we had three before, so bring it. Is that right? If you're in the D.C. area, Lido's Pizza, Square Slices. I love it. I'm a fan. Um, when I was a kid, I used to go to camp and our on parents' weekend, we would go to Wendy's. Uh, we didn't have one in the D.C. area, but we had one near my camp. They had Square Burgers. Why? Wendy said, we don't cut corners. I always think about that when I think about <laughs> squares and food. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they still have square burgers, but I've never heard the actual slogan tied to it, which makes, feels like they need. I don't know if they still use the slogan, but it stuck with me. So, uh, and then I went to an all girls school that was an Episcopal school, a National Cathedral School for Girls. And we had a school hymn. And one of the verses was, I won't sing it, uh, Lord, thy daughters, pray thee, make us one and all like the polished corners of thy chapel wall. So we were encouraged to be uh, polished, do your best all the time, strong, you know, like the corner of a, of a chapel wall and faithful. So, um, you know, that stuck with me. So when I, I don't know why the chapel wall and the pizza came together, but I guess they're all tied to squares and edges. So many people you guys engaged during the hymn when you didn't want to sing anymore. Um, I mean, the, the range and diversity in that answer went from pizza to burgers to church and all girls school. It's it really come bringing back all full circle. Yeah, I um, I'll say one more thing that I think you, you haven't asked the question, but we talked about it a little bit. I am the grandchild of three educators. And um, so three of my four grandparents we're, we're teachers, we're school counselors, school administrators, went to, um, all had graduate degrees. The fourth one was an oral surgeon. Across my family, there's a, a deep belief in, in service and economic opportunity and providing um, opportunities for others. And so I think I do, I, I hear my, my grandparents all the time, sort of in my head and when I'm thinking about my work and whether I'm having a good day or a bad day, uh, they're they're always with me. And they always said, you know, make this place a better place than you found it. Leave it a better place than you found it. And education is important. And for Black people in America and around the world in a lot of cases, knowledge is something that can never be taken away. Property and knowledge. They were big believers in buying property when you could. <laughs> but uh, property can be taken away from eminent domain. That's a different conversation. But right. knowledge, acquiring knowledge was something that they really, really believed in and instilled in all of us. And I think it's a big reason why I do uh, what I do is because I know the, the power of getting an education and how that really changes the trajectory of people's lives. It's, it's what gets me up to do my job in the morning every day. Yeah. That, is, that and, my, and my kids who like to wake up at six. <laughs> They got to eat too. Um, no, it's powerful. And I appreciate you, you sharing in the, those contexts and stories about who you are, where we come from and the people in our lives that influence us are really important. Um, and you certainly made this square pizza pod uh, a better place. And so we thank you for that.
Thank you. This has been fantastic. I love spending time with you talking about what I do. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a that's a good thing or not, but but I do I do love the work and I I do love um, working for a company that that really believes that it can make the world a better place. It's awesome. Lydia Logan, thanks so much for joining the Square Pizza Pod. Thank you, Square Pizza Pod. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.